morning, friends, and let me add my uh, welcome to Liz's. We are glad to see you here this morning, and you all look amazing. In fact, I feel like I should introduce myself because I'm not usually wearing a suit and tie. I'm Kevin. I'm the lead <laughs> pastor here. So, Well, one of the things that we love to do on Easter is a traditional Easter greeting where somebody says, He is risen, and everyone responds, He is risen indeed. So let's try it this morning. He is risen. It is good to celebrate Easter with you, and one of the things that I absolutely love about our building is when you walk in the front doors, if you look up, you see that there's the stone rolling away, and so every time we walk in and out of this building, if we're paying attention and if I happen to look up, we're reminded of Jesus' death and resurrection and the hope that that brings. Well, let me just take a moment and pray for us, and then uh, we'll share what God's placed on our hearts for this week. Father God, we just invite you to speak to us this morning. We're thankful for the hope that Jesus brings to us. We thank you for all that this weekend reminds us of. And we pray that you would refresh us. We pray that you would strengthen us as we gather and we worship together and we're reminded of that hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Well, we use the word hope to describe all sorts of things that we want for our life and world. We want small, simple things, or we hope for small, simple things like, I hope that the Amazon package that I ordered is going to be delivered on time. Or I hope that the Colts will uh, acquire a a veteran-wide receiver so that our new quarterback has somebody to throw to. That's actually the hope of Joey Christensen, our next-gen pastor. I just hope the Colts win a little more frequently. Or we may hope for things like that spring will finally be here so that we can get outside and do things that we love. For me, that's getting outside and riding my bike. So we hope for simple things, but we also hope for bigger, deeper things for ourselves. So things for ourselves, like for me, uh, I'm hopeful that I can continue to see how God is at work in my life and cooperate uh, cooperate with that. We hope for things for our world and our community I hope my family continues to thrive and that they all become who God has created them to be. And I hope that same thing for this church family, that we would be healthy and that we would grow into all God is calling us to be. And then we hope for things for our world. I'm sure uh, all of you have been following what's happening in Ukraine. It's been weighing on my heart a lot these days and praying for Ukraine and for all the conflict spots around the world. Well, the Oxford Dictionary describes hope as a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. And so I wonder what you're hoping for. Because without hope, uh, without hope, um, we struggle to thrive. And without hope, people shrivel up and life becomes a matter of survival. Author and researcher Brene Brown says it in her book, Atlas of the Heart, we need hope like we need air. The truth is that hope has been in short supply these days, and I don't have to list all the reasons why, but as I was researching this message, I came across this hope, or this uh, quote that grabbed my attention because of how hopeless it sounds. And this is what the writer said. In times like this, not that I can name another time like this, it feels impossible to maintain any sense of hopefulness or optimism about the future. Not only is it a challenge to imagine any future in a world where things are constantly changing, 
But it's especially tough to think, let alone expect, a future in which things are actually somewhat positive. Now, the writer wrote that on the front end just as we were encountering uh, the COVID pandemic, and it sounds incredibly hopeless. But actually, the rest of our article was really good in describing ways that we can engage with hope. So I wonder for you, what are you hoping for this morning? Are you feeling hopeful? Are you feeling hopeless? Well, I wish that we had time to sit down and have a cup of good coffee and to share those things that we're hoping for, because I bet many of them are the same, same things. But we can't do that this morning. So what we're going to do this morning instead is I'm going to look at three people, three people and what each of them were hoping for and the invitation that they received to encounter hope. Now, they're not the people that we would typically look at as we celebrate Easter. They're probably what you might call bit players. They don't have large sections of the scripture written about them. But I think that's precisely why uh, that they are great characters for us to look at, because they're people that we can relate to. And they were hoping for many of the same things that we hope for. They were hoping for the thriving of their people and their nation. They were hoping for justice and peace in their world. And they were looking something for something real that they could place their, that they could put their trust in, something that they could base their life upon. Now I'm going to share these stories a little bit differently uh, than typical, and I'm going to take some creative license as I share them in the first person narrative. But these stories are adapted from, the, from John, the disciple John, his gospel, and not to be confused with John the Baptist, who's going to be shared about in some of the stories. But John, the disciple, was unique in several ways, and his gospel was unique. First of all, John was one of the last living eyewitnesses of Jesus. While many of the disciples died quite young, John lived into his early 90s, which was extraordinarily old for the day. And his gospel, and gospel simply means good news, was written last. It was written after the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John wanted to capture many of the stories that weren't captured in the other gospels, things that he thought were critical for us to know and remember. And his, his gospel is deeply personal. He captures more the human side of Jesus, the heart, whereas the other disciples focus more on what Jesus taught and what he did. Now, if you're curious about the scriptures that we use to create these narratives, you can download the Grace Fishers app and you can look at those. But I'm going to begin by sharing the perspective of Andrew the disciple. I was a fisherman like my father before me and like my grandfather before him. We've been fishermen for generations. We generally had enough, especially when the fishing was good, unlike many of the people that live in our land, that live day to day and in poverty, bearing down under the weight of the heavy taxes that they have to pay. And it's not just the Roman taxes. It makes me angry that our Jewish religious leaders exploit the people as well. They seem to be willing to do anything to profit themselves and to maintain their positions of authority. And it's our own people that pay the price. 
As a boy, one of the many psalms that I memorized was Psalm 34, which is turn away from evil and seek and do good, search for peace and work to maintain it. Well, I've been seeking justice my whole life. You see, God created us Jews to be people who care about the marginalized and poor among us. That's probably why I was intrigued the first time that I heard John the baptizer speak. Now, he looked a little crazy. He dressed in a rough garment made of camel hair, and he lived in the desert far away from the cities and away from most people, and he ate locusts and wild honey as his diet. And he even sounded a little crazy. He boldly called out our people to repent, to turn away and to live justly and to deal honestly with one another. He probably sounded a little crazy like a street preacher in your day. But there were truth in his words and hope for a just world. We Israelites have a concept called shalom. It's a beautiful image of a just and peaceful world where people and God and the whole creation live in harmony with one another. Well, people responded to John's message. I responded. I wanted to see that world realize that he spoke of. And that's why he baptized Our baptism was our sign of commitment to living justly. But that wasn't all that John taught. John told us that he was there to get us ready for someone. In fact, he said it like this. He said, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness. Make way for the Lord's coming. He was talking about the Messiah. Our scriptures describe the Messiah as the one who would come and save us from our oppressors. And one day it happened. The person that John the baptizer was talking about was suddenly there in our midst. John pointed it to him and said, look, there's the Lamb of God. John believed that this man, Jesus, was going to come and save Israel and deal with the sin mess. We were so surprised he was standing there that we didn't know what to say. But Jesus could tell that I and the other disciple who were with me were intrigued. What do you want, he asked us. Jesus knew that we wanted something from him. He was asking us what we were seeking, what we were hoping for. And so we responded to him by saying, where are you staying? Now that response probably sounds a little strange to you. You Westerners are typically more direct and to the point. But we Israelites are indirect. But Jesus understood that we wanted time with him. And so he invited us to come and see. We accepted his invitation of hospitality and we spent the day walking and talking with him and learning from him. And that day started to change everything. All the hopes that we had began to materialize right in front of us. Now when I realized who Jesus was, uh, I went and looked immediately for my brother Peter. And I told him the good news, we found the Messiah. Now, Jesus wasn't calling his disciples yet, but later he would call Peter and I to follow him. And so we eventually did, and we journeyed with Jesus for several years. And what we saw blew our minds. I remember the time he touched Peter's mother-in-law and he healed her of a fever, but that was really just the beginning. I was there when when he took five loaves and two fishes and he fed thousands upon thousands of people 
people who were hungry for the church, for truth, and had stayed with Jesus for three days until their bodies were as hungry as their souls. He even raised people from the dead. And then the biggest miracle of all, he himself rose from the dead. Well, we didn't understand it all then, even though he tried to tell us what was going to happen. Jesus became the justice that we hoped for. While everything didn't change at once, the hope and the world, the revolution that John the baptizer talked about, began to be realized in Jesus, and he was its power source. The change that we couldn't bring about began to become a reality in him. And in time, all things will be made new and perfect shalom will reign. But it has begun. Come and see. I'll never forget the moments that he spoke those words to me. I'm glad I accepted the invitation. Well, this is the perspective of uh, Nathaniel, one of the other disciples. I'm naturally curious, and that curiosity is what's driven my desire to learn. I was always a good student, but not enough, good enough to continue to study with the rabbi. But even after my formal schooling ended, I loved to reflect on the scriptures, the teaching of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets. When I wasn't working, you would often find me sitting under the shade of a fig tree reflecting on the scriptures and praying. I would often pray Psalm 119, I will never forget your commandments, for by them you give me life. Even though I've believed all of this since I was a young boy, sometimes I wonder. The prophets have been quiet for a long time. Not one has spoken for hundreds of years. It's almost as if God himself has gone quiet. Well, my good friend Philip met him first. Actually, Jesus found him when they were in Nazareth. And Jesus walked up to him and said, come, follow me. Because of our friendship, it made sense that Philip would come find me. And I was surprised that day when he told me, we have found the very person that Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. From Nazareth? Really? Nazareth is an insignificant, dirty little town in the hill country. I know a few people from that region and nothing significant ever happens there. Nazareth is on the road to nowhere. But Philip was unfazed by my response. Come and see for yourself. I had to admit I was a little bit curious because I remembered the words of Moses from the scroll of Deuteronomy when he said, I will raise up a prophet like you from among your fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell the people everything that I command them. When I met Jesus, he wasn't anything like I expected. And what he said startled me. Jesus called me a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. As I've said before, our scriptures have always been important to me. And honoring them through living a life of integrity is a way that we show honor and respect for our God, Yahweh. So I said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip found you. How could he have known that that was my favorite place to sit and to pray and reflect? 
I felt like he saw inside me. I felt exposed, but I also felt known. But how could a man that I'd never met before know me? And it brought to mind all the things that I had prayed to Yahweh, all the words that I had prayed, my hopes and dreams. How many times had I prayed the words of the prophet Jeremiah, if you look for me, you will find me. I'd wanted to see God. And I knew right then and right there, there was something different about this rabbi. And so I called him son of God, king of Israel. Now again, much of this I understand only looking back. But even in that first encounter, Jesus promised that we would see heaven and earth meet. And over time, I began to realize that the truth that I looked for my whole life converged in Jesus. He was God. He was the fulfillment of word, the words of Moses and the other prophets. And towards the end of his time with us, he said it this way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. We began to realize that all of this history pointed towards this moment, and we got to see it with our own eyes. I sometimes wonder, what if Philip hadn't come and found me? And what if I hadn't accepted his invitation to come and see And then the final perspective, the words of Thomas, another one of the 12 disciples. I was always a little skeptical. It was probably just in my nature because it started when I was just a boy. I would often ask my parents hard questions. Like if Yahweh is our deliverer and protector, why do we still live under the thumb of Rome? And I would say, why is there so much evil in this world if God has promised to conquer evil? Though the world seemed to prove, disprove much of what we hoped and believed in, and I could tell that my questions, made my, or my questions made my parents uncomfortable, so eventually I stopped asking them. But the questions never went away. I also didn't trust our religious leaders who, even though they trumpeted their trust in God, clearly seemed to act in a way that showed that they trust, trusted only themselves and their own actions. I kept hoping to find something true, something real, something that I could really believe in. Now, I knew the part of the answer from our scriptures that God would send a Messiah, that he would send us someone to rescue us from our oppressors. And occasionally a so-called Messiah would show up. He would always raise a following he would promise to kick out the oppressors, whoever that currently was. But eventually, whoever was in charge, for, for, and during our time it was Rome, they would take notice and they would stamp out the movement and it would come to an end. It would come to failure. But something felt different about Jesus. Maybe it was because he seemed focused on freeing us from a different kind of oppression. And maybe it was because he talked about self-sacrificing love instead of violent revolt. That definitely set him apart from the zealots and the revolutionaries. So I followed Jesus when he called me and named me one of his 12 disciples. We all knew that there were risks in following Jesus. If he drew too much attention and attracted too many crowds, the Romans might step in. But our Jewish religious leaders acted first, led by Caiaphas, the high priest, and he had Jesus arrested 
and then he involved the Romans. I always thought of myself as courageous, but I ran and I hid like the others when Jesus was arrested. And we saw terrible things. We saw Jesus beaten and whipped and eventually crucified. We were stunned because real prophets have their predictions come true. And real messiahs win the battle. A true messiah doesn't die. A few days later, after his death, I was away, but the other disciples were gathered in a locked room. And they, they said that Jesus appeared to them, and they were excited to find me and tell me, we've seen the Lord. But I thought they were delusional. I thought maybe they were so grief-stricken they couldn't think straight. They were confused or confused from being fear of arrested. But I wasn't going to be fooled again. I had seen Jesus' lifeless body on that cross. So I told them, I won't believe it unless I see the wounds in his hands and I see the wound in his side. I won't believe. I needed more than just another story. Well, eight days later, it happened again, except this time I was there with them. Suddenly, out of nowhere, Jesus appeared right in the midst of us. I know it sounds crazy, but I saw it with my own eyes. And Jesus welcomed us all with a traditional greeting of peace. And then he looked straight at me and he said, Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand in the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Part rebuke and part invitation to see for myself, my response was immediate. My Lord, my God, I worshiped him. Then Jesus said, you believe because you have seen me and blessed are those who believe without seeing me. I've never forgotten those words. The skeptical part of me finally finds something that was true that I could base my life upon. Someone that even death couldn't conquer. And that's what I have always hoped for. So what do you need this Easter? What are you hoping for? The truth is that many of the things that we hope for in our lives will ultimately disappoint us. People and relationships and organization, maybe things that we engage in that bring us pleasure, our ideas about the future. But in Jesus, our hopes can be realized. He's not just a great teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. He's the God-man who willingly offered himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. And we should probably listen to somebody who predicted his own death and resurrection and then delivered on that promise. But the hope that we receive isn't just hope that we're meant to think about and assent to up here in our brains. This hope is a person that you're intended to encounter. Jesus' invitation to come and see is for you and for you and for you and for me. And to fully understand who Jesus is, we need a personal encounter for, with him. For me, my come and see moment came when I was in college. You see, I'd grown up in the church, and I would say I was, I, that I believed. But as I got older and I began to realize that there was so much pain and suffering in the world, the questions began to emerge. And as I was in high school, I began to wonder, is this faith my own or is it my parents? 
And I begin to ask the question, is Jesus who he says he really is? And in college, I allowed myself to doubt, to question, to wrestle. But really what I was doing was opening myself up to Jesus. I was willing to come and see. And so it was during that year in college, during my freshman year, that I had my come and see moment with Jesus where I encountered him. And that encounter and that decision to surrender my life has changed everything. Now, Jesus' invitation to come and see sounds to us like this. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. You see, when we don't have any hope or when our hope disappoints us, it feels like we're living in darkness, like we're in a dark room with the door shut. And Jesus wants to open that door and let the light in. And he wants to give us hope and life found in him. And when we surrender our lives to Jesus, we experience that hope that we're longing for, a hope that doesn't disappoint, even in the midst of the storms of light, life. And that's what happened to these disciples who followed Jesus. Once they fully understand who he was in light of all that he taught and in the light of his resurrection, they were different men. Even though they were simple, largely uneducated teenagers, when Jesus called them, these same men eventually traveled the known world and sharing the come and see invitation about Jesus to everybody that they met most of them at the cost of their own lives. You see, Jesus invites us into a personal encounter with him no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. Maybe you're still trying to figure out who Jesus is. He invites you to come and see. He invites you to bring your questions and your doubts and the, your wrestling. Will you accept the invitation to come and see who he is? And if you're new to this church, we want you to know that th we want this place to be a safe place for you to ask those questions and to explore. Maybe you're somebody who has begun to experience some of that hope of Jesus. You've begun to figure out who he is. But you haven't gotten to that place where you fully surrendered your life to him. Well, Jesus is inviting you to fully surrender and if you've not done that, why not make Easter 2022 the time that you do that? And by the way, we're celebrating baptisms next weekend. It's our way of celebrating people or celebrating with people who have made that decision to surrender to Jesus. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus already, the invitation is also for us. Daily, we are invited to come and see and experience Jesus in a fresh way. The hope that we experience at Easter isn't meant for one day a year. We should celebrate Easter every day and the hope that it brings. I was reminded as I was reading through the Psalms this week, I came across Psalm 27. And the psalmist wrote, my heart has heard you. He's speaking to God when, he, when God says, come and talk with me. That invitation that God and this, the psalmist responds affirmatively, yes, Lord, I'm coming. Well, maybe you've been in a season where you've experienced disappointment or pain or you've just felt stuck. Jesus is inviting you into a new season to experience life for him as you daily encounter him. 
friends. We could have focused on putting on the greatest Easter show and merely sending you home feeling good. But what we really want you to hear today is that Jesus invites you, uh, he invites you into relationship with him. He invites you to come and see. Won't you accept his invitation? Now we wanna give you just a few quiet moments. I know um, probably like me, like most of you have had busy and quiet weeks. So we just wanna give you a few seconds to reflect on what are you hoping for? And then in a moment, I'll pray. Father God, we thank you for the hope that we experience at Easter and really the hope that you experience to invite, you invite us into every day. The hope that Jesus was who he said he was. The hope that he's conquered sin and death and he's freed us from those things. The hope that we can live free from fear and from shame and guilt. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the invitation to come and see. Father God, help us to rent, surrender ourselves fully to you and experience all the life that you offer us. And we pray this in the name of the one who gives us life, Jesus. Amen.